0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Elsa Hart set her first three mystery novels in 18th century China. Her newest one is half a world away from that in 18th century England. The Cabinets of Barnaby, Maine is set within the coterie of voracious collectors who lived in 1703 London. These men, and it was almost always men, devoted their disposable incomes to acquiring rarities of art and nature. When a prominent collector is murdered, an amateur botanist named Cecily Kay finds herself driven to right an injustice and solve the crime. It's a fascinating glimpse at a mostly forgotten scene, and it's a mystery that will delight Agatha Christie lovers and fans of historical fiction alike. And so joining me today to talk about it is its St. Louis-based author, Elsa Hart. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you were living in China when you started what would become a three-book series set there, but I understand you wrote this new book when you were living in St. Louis. What led you to set it in London?
1: Yes, so something something I didn't know before I started writing novels is that by the time you're finished, you've created a lot of ghosts, these ghosts of characters who didn't end up finding a place in the story or ghosts of plot points that had to be deleted. And the cabinets of Barnaby, Maine started with one of those ghosts. When I wrote that first book set in China, I modeled one of its characters on a man named James Cunningham. And he was a Scottish ship's surgeon who journeyed to China in 1696. Hmm. And when he announced he was going to do it, it was this huge deal because very few Westerners were going to China at that point. And he received all these uh, instructions Uh, including some from a London apothecary um, on how to collect and preserve plants to bring back to England. And that character who was inspired by Cunningham didn't end up playing as big a role in that first book as I thought he would. So I had done all this research that I hadn't used and I'd learned a little bit about this community of collectors who were waiting in England for items like Cunningham's pressed plants. And I always wanted to, to follow those those specimens that he sent back to follow them to England to this community who was waiting for them. And uh, so for the cabinets of Barnaby, Maine, that is what I decided to do. Hmm. So this was a way of following these specimens and then introducing this whole new cast
0: of characters. And as you set them in this world in 18th century England, it's really great. The reader feels like they're really there. The details feel so evocative. But I couldn't help but wonder how much 18th century England had in common with 18th century China. Did any of your prior research on, on living conditions and things like that carry over? Did you have to start from scratch in terms of things like that
1: I pretty much had to start to start from scratch and and consult uh, a whole new set of resources there was there's one character in common between the the books set in China and the books set in England so, so there was that, but he's an Englishman. But in terms of learning about what London was like at the time, I, I really relied on on book research and then was very lucky to be able to uh, make a short trip to London and look for, uh, a house on which to model the house in which the book is is set and the murder takes place.
0: Hmm. So you found a specific house for this. How did you go about choosing? I want this to be the home of Barnaby Maine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was it was very fun. I was looking for uh, houses that were built at the in the late sixteen hundreds, uh, of which there there aren't all that many. Um, and I I found the model in actually uh, Samuel Johnson's house, Doctor Johnson's house, which is. Uh, uh, uh open to visitors and so i pretty much took the exact floor plan from that house and used it in the cabinets of barnaby maine uh though though in cabinets uh the collection of barnaby maine is so big he's had to purchase the house next door as well so i sort of doubled the space but you know for for a mystery especially one that takes place you know in a sort of manor house style mystery uh, a floor plan is so important so when I went and visited Dr. Johnson's house, I was kind of the creepy visitor that day, like standing in the stairwell and taking notes on like how much I could see into different rooms, from what angles and how much I could hear from one floor, you know, eavesdropping on conversations on another floor. So that was hugely helpful. But I I hope I didn't creep the docents out too much. Yeah. So you were somewhat plotting a murder while you were
0: visiting this house on tour. Did you explain to anyone, oh, I'm actually a mystery writer? I didn't,
1: not at all. I, I maybe should have, but again, I hope it didn't seem too creepy. But I'm, um, I I was so much in my own head. I really, I really just wandered around, and it was a wonderful place to to visit. When um, when in the future uh, travel is an option again, it's it's quiet and contains an enormous wealth of, of information about. Uh, Samuel Johnson's life as well, for those who are interested. Hmm. Well, your
0: historical research, it pays off not only in a murder that that holds true to, to what could happen inside a house like this, but you also just had some wonderful details that struck me as someone who doesn't know much about this time. One of them was the idea of how they're displaying the body of the deceased for days on end, and people can come by and see this embalmed body. I, I assume this must have been the custom there. This isn't something you invented for the book.
1: It is, and I did. I did find that in in my research that a body might be out for for up to about a week uh, for people to come by and pay their respects. And there were some rudimentary ways of trying to prevent it from from being too unpleasant, using sort of straw and 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 various ways of keeping the situation as as dry as possible. But it did sound uh, uh, pretty. Gruesome, really.
0: Yeah, that was that was very gruesome, and I was also struck by just how cursory the police investigation was. Was that generally the case at this time in in London?
1: You know, I, I manipulated a bit just for the for the sake of the story and and having an amateur detective who was working pretty much on her own. But it was there. There certainly wasn't the any sort of system of, of criminal investigation in the same way that there there is today or would, would have been even a few years later. It really was pretty neighborhood or, or parish specific that you had people who were members of the community who were also in charge of policing it, but how much how or the the level of organization with which they did so really kind of varied on on the individual and again i mean mysteries are so uh artificial as stories usually when somebody's murdered it's pretty obvious who did it there isn't a there isn't you know a huge uh investigation needed it's more of a chase the bad guy sort of situation um
0: and here, this so, this plays more like an Agatha Christie, where you have there's just any number of suspects who all happen to be within this closed environment, and you know the reader is sort of guessing along with Cecily Kay. Is it hard to make sure that the reader is staying a step behind, but not staying so far behind that they're lost?
1: It's a challenge, and I I I, I hope I do it well, but I I really enjoy trying to do it because Agatha Christie is it has always been a huge Influence on me and and the idea that at the the core of the story there really is this kind of logic puzzle and then you overlay Human motivations and personalities on top of it, but it really is this very Structured puzzle um, of a story and I'm I'm just really drawn to that and I like doing it I do rely heavily on outlines so I outline the entire story before I even start trying to to write a sentence so that I know exactly which clues are going to be found when and what uh, deductions will be made from those. Uh, And which is not actually the case for all mystery writers. I sort of assumed it would be, but the more I talk to other writers, the more I learn that that some, some are able to write and start the story without actually knowing who did it yet and figure it out as they go, which astounds me. I don't know how that
0: would be possible. <laughs> they let the plot guide them, but it sounds like you know going in who done it. Have you ever found yourself changing on a major detail as you get to know these characters? You decide, you know what?
1: I'm I'm gonna deviate from this outline. Definitely, yes. I I, I always think I'm not going to have to, because I have this outline that I that I think has worked everything out. But then of course when you really try to turn it into believable characters doing believable things I run into two moments when a character I've created it just doesn't make sense I realize once I look at it closely it doesn't make sense for them to act the way I need them to act for the plot so then I do have to sometimes go back to the outline rethink the different strands pull them together and and whole characters often get squeezed out or deleted over the course of of the of the writing process,
0: mm-hmm. we're talking to author Elsa Hart about her new book. It's called *The Cabinets of Barnaby Maine*. It's a murder mystery. Um, it's just it's a it's a wonderful read. And uh, Elsa, your protagonist, this is new to this book, the amateur detective Cecily Kay. She's really a wonderful creation. I have to wonder, was it a relief to have that third-person omniscient perspective for a woman instead of a man?
1: It was. I mean, I I loved and became. Dear friends with my protagonist of my previous novels Lee do but it was I really enjoyed getting to know Cecily Kay. it it wasn't easy and and uh I actually several months into writing the book was having a lot of trouble figuring out who my protagonist who this detective was uh she's a plant enthusiast who has returned home to England after after several years abroad but I she was a botanical enthusiast, an illustrator, a truth seeker, but she was also kind of roguish. And I just, I couldn't get her to be consistent. And then (laughs) this one afternoon I got a phone call from one of my closest friends from graduate schools. And it was one of those phone calls where a a friend calls and you just go right to these really intense subjects, like Hmm. meaning of life, career anxiety, family, stress, like everything at once. And it was such a high energy conversation. And I hung up the phone and I realized in that moment what the trouble was with Cecily Kay was that I was trying to fit two characters into one, and that she wasn't one person; she was two. And that's when I created the character of her friend Mac and Barlow. So I had these two women with different perspectives who could talk to each other. And that's really what the book needed. And then it really came together.
0: Hmm. And that's interesting. As, as you explain that, I can totally see how it, it, it really does help to have these two. They can compare notes at, at points. At one point, you're not even sure if, if they can trust each other. And I don't yes. want to give away any spoilers. Um, but the, the, the reader learns a lot through this friendship. Um, and it's interesting because one of them, Cecily, she's obviously of a higher class, um, than her friend. did you examine how being an upper class woman gave her more or or fewer limitations than if she'd been somebody like like her friend McCann?
1: A little bit. It's a, a question, and I will um I've been thinking about it a lot lately as i I work on thinking about a sequel to the to the book. But exactly so that there were there are some Cecily has had advantages, but she's also had limitations. and particularly when she enters into this, community of collectors she is the one at a bit of a disadvantage because Mackin has been living within it and understanding uh how how you can manipulate the, the people in this community who are often so so obsessed about their collections that 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 can be used. And so in some ways, Macken just has her balance a little bit more at the beginning, and Cecily has to figure out what's going on.
0: Hmm. So yeah, the truly great theme of this book is about these collections. And I got the sense you almost had like a Jane Austen kind of tone where a little mm-hmm. bit of arch in your author's voice. Am I right in thinking that you shared some of Cecily's skeptical difference from the, just the obsession with which some of these men approach these collections?
1: I did, and it it came out in the research and and really became a, a, a core of what inspired the book was that these these collectors uh, m- mostly men all very wealthy because you had to be wealthy to have the the space and the resources to to acquire all of these things uh, were, in some ways, just a a very petty and competitive community. There were these feuds among collectors who were angry at each other for, uh, you know, getting some rare object that the other one had wanted to get first, and very competitive about their reputations, and, and really obsessed with their legacies, with this idea that their collection was a representation of who they were, and that it had to be Preserved and protected for out, throughout all eternity, and there's you know such er- such human arrogance to that. So, um, so I did find it wasn't a a community that I felt needed to be glorified in in the novel.
0: Hmm. Well, as you get at and it, it ends up being somewhat of a plot point in here, this obsession with their collections living on after them. And it made me wonder for people who are in this world of botany or who care about things like artifacts, do any of these collections remain relevant to anyone today?
1: I mean, certainly, certainly they do and and uh I, a lot at this time, when the collections were were being made, a lot of them were reforming what would become the foundation of 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 contemporary museums, hmm. and and continue to be resources for research. I mean, pressed plant specimens uh, still exist in herbariums, and you can consult them and gain a huge amount of information about uh, identifications for plants and and the history of of plant collecting and and natural history. So so in terms of their contribution to science, a lot of these objects uh, have, have played a huge role And continue to.
0: Hmm. So where's that line between, you know, they're contributing to science versus they're just being completely petty? They almost reminded me a little bit of how young men today will get so into pop culture and they might be just obsessing over one of these uh, geek-oriented TV shows. Uh, (laughs) Did you see more of the useful or were there very few useful collections and most of it was just men showing off their knowledge? (laughs)
1: uh <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. It's just it's always a little bit of both. And it's so complex. Uh, the sets of, of motivations and genuine intellectual curiosity and and excitement about learning more about the natural world versus uh, versus more human considerations of of vanity. Uh, in reality, I think a little bit of each exists in most people, of course, in, in mysteries, one simplifies so each, each of the different characters and each of the different suspects, I tried to have be representative of different approaches So, So there is one young uh, Swedish scientist who is visiting who really just does care very much about identifying snakes uh, and uh, versus a, a young, a young man who is, has a lot of money, but doesn't have as much class and is kind of trying to use collecting to, to get into this cool kids club. So, Lots of different characters, and very fun to play with that in in writing a mystery. Hmm.
0: And as you say, you're already working on a sequel, which is strongly hinted at there in the end. Do
1: you have this one? Uh, the, the, is the plot outlined? It's that's the process I'm in right now: the outlining of the plot, the the sketching out of the different uh, suspects and how they appear versus how they really are. Uh, it t- what I can say is that it takes place. In northern England, in uh, County Durham, which is where Cecily grew up, so she is returning, returning to her home. And of course, once she gets there, there will be a a, a body will turn up.
0: <laughs> a body will turn up. I gotta ask, though, in our final question here, you know, you're obviously very interested in the 18th century. You have all these through lines. Do you think you'll ever set a mystery in 18th century St. Louis? It seems like it might really lend itself to a great bloody murder plot.
1: It absolutely could, and and I would love to at some point. I mean. Uh, 18th century or late 17th century would be uh, one of the inns there would be the early Jesuits who were traveling around in the area like uh, a paramarquette and I had done some research on Jesuits in China uh, for for my first three books so that would be one one sort of research inroad for me. But um, yeah, when my mind's not in China or for now on the moors of Northern England, I might absolutely turn to that. Well, I hope we can convince you to do that because I would love to read that and it doesn't have to be next. So
0: <laughs> Elsa Hart, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Elsa's new mystery, that's The Cabinets of Barnaby, Maine. It's a great read. Elsa's doing a virtual reading with Left Bank Books. That's at 7 p.m. this Thursday, August 20th. And you can join via Left Bank Books' Facebook page. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU.